0: Welcome to the Online Fraudcast. I'm Brett Johnson. My co-host Carisse Hendrick is missing in action today. She's gotten a pretty bad cold. She's taking the week off. Hopefully, she'll get to feeling better and be able to join us again next week. In the meantime, it's me, Solo Time again. Now, as most of our listeners know, we're both anti-fraud experts, but we come with very different sets of experiences. Carisse has been in the anti-fraud industry for well over a decade. She's worked with some of the largest companies on the planet to help them prevent fraud. Me? I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online. In fact, I built the first organized cybercrime community called Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet markets that laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. Because of those things, I ended up on the United States Most Wanted list. I spent time in prison. Since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the type of people like I used to be. And as I said, this is a solo episode again. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about several different things. Synthetic fraud is going to be one, password protection is another, just a few different topics altogether. And hopefully that will uh, make up for my lack of a co-host today, because without her, I really don't even know what I'm doing. So the first thing is, is yesterday I was reading this report about looking forward in the future about trends in cybersecurity, what organizations and companies needed to prepare for to get ready. And the two things that really stuck out, it listed three things. The first thing I didn't even pay attention to, it was some crap. The next two, it talked about sophisticated phishing and preparing employees, training them properly on security. So I just want to mention that stuff real quick. We're talking about, so it says prepare for sophisticated phishing. Here's the thing. Over 90% of all attacks use known exploits. 90%, 90% plus, use known exploits. They're, it's not, I say time and time again that that cybercrime is not rocket science. It's not. The exploits that are out there, the attack methods, the tools that criminals use, over 90% of them are known. They're known. The problem is, is that people don't put in, they don't update their systems in a timely manner. They don't train their employees on on how to look for attack vectors, things like that. That's the problem. And when you're looking at 90%, a lot of people think that, oh, we've got, you know, all these guys out there, they're sophisticated, they're they these top tier hackers, they're able to break in any computer system they want to break into. How can we possibly, how can we possibly protect ourselves against that? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, it's, it's not like that. It's not like that. 99% of all these, these guys out here committing c- cybercrime, they're not sophisticated. They are not sophisticated. They're reading a tutorial. They're, they're, they're partnering up with someone because maybe the only thing they know how to do is put an, a, an ATM card in a machine and pull cash out because they just happen to be in a correct country that's able to, to accept those ATM cards. So it, it's, it's one of these things that, that we need to start understanding how cybercrime actually works. All right, And not every player out there is a sophisticated, upper-tier computer hacker able to break in any system he wants to. And these, these statistics, they support that. 90% are known exploits. An update comes out, and I've said this in speeches and I'll say it here. When an update comes out, the only thing an update is, if you're looking at a security update, the only thing an update is, is a broadcast to every single criminal on the planet telling them which door to knock on to gain access. That's the only thing an update is. Look at Equifax. Do you think think the attackers knew about the Apache exploit before the update was announced? No, they didn't. We know that for a fact. They did not know about it. But within 24 hours of that update being announced, Equifax starts being pinged with this, this attack vector, this exploit. Because most attackers know that companies and individuals are very slow to install the updates. They're very slow. And it's an automated program. You, just, it, you simply, little Billy, 400 pounds in his mom's basement screaming, Mom, bring me a sandwich and cut the crusts off. He goes to bed one night. He's got the program out there sniffing all this stuff with this exploit. And he wakes up the next morning. He's like, oh, I guess Equifax didn't put in the update. And he's got access. And, and that's the problem. That's the problem is we we don't do what we're supposed to do. So 90% plus of all attacks use known exploits. Here's another statistic for you. 92% of every single breach begins with a phishing attack. It begins with a phishing attack. Now, why is that? It's not, you know, I I have a nice little line I say in, in my presentations. That's because there is no patch for human stupidity. You know, that's a funny line. It is. It's a cute line. And it gets a lot of laughter and everything like that. Then I then I cut it off real quick because while that's a funny line, it's not really accurate. The problem is is that we as a people, we tend to trust our technology. We sign on to a computer and we 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 inherently trust what we see. We we trust those news reports. That's one of the reasons that Hashtag fake news is so popular. It's it's so effective because people, when they're online, they trust what they're reading. They don't verify. You know, we had Reagan back in the 80s. Trust but verify. Well, we're trusting, but we're not verifying anything. We take all those reports and we say, oh, it's got to be true. And usually we, we go with whatever we agree with as true. Oh, it's yeah, I don't like that person, so that's got to be true. Well, you know what? It's not like that. The internet is not. <laughs> the the internet and, and computers are not inherently trustworthy. They're not. If you had uh, so a phishing attack, why does it work? It works because you've got an attacker that's a social engineer. He understands the technology well enough to be able to send you an email or pick up the phone and vish and, and you like that. And he knows that you're going to trust the technology. The technology actually allows him to build a base level of trust with you. And then whatever the messages that he sends, or if he's talking to you on the phone, whatever he's talking to you about, he starts layering trust from there. Let's walk through that just so that everyone understands from an attacker point of view, exactly how a social engineering attack works. And we'll use a call center. And I think I've made, I may have discussed this before in a couple of other uh, uh, episodes. Certainly I've discussed it in presentations so if, I, if I'm looking to defraud a company or get access or information from a company, a lot of the times what I would do when I was a criminal, what I would do is I would pick up the phone. I would spoof if I was taking over someone's account. Say I had their credit card or the bank account and I was looking to take over that account to steal money, to order replacement cards, whatever I wanted to do or to get information. What I would do is I would pick up the phone. I would spoof the phone number of the actual account holder. I would call in to customer service. Now, when I spoof that phone number, what happens is, is, it doesn't. for anybody who doesn't know, I call in. Instead of it showing the phone number that I'm dialing from, it shows the phone number on the customer service screen of the actual account holder. Now, that is a base level of trust. That's the only thing that is. Now, my, my entire goal of the phone call is to get the phone number on file changed. Okay. Now if I call in and spoof that number and it shows the actual account number holder's number on the screen of the customer service agent, that lays what I call a base level of trust. If I were to ask that customer service agent at that point in time, "Hey, I need to update my phone number." The chances of that happening without any type of friction very low, very slim, because again, it's just a base level of trust. I've not really established that I am that account holder. I need to, uh, I need to do that. I need to establish a rapport. I need to layer the trust levels up so high that the customer service agent realizes or thinks that I am that person. It's this, it's this idea that I used to teach when I was a criminal, and I actually taught it at the Secret Service when I worked with them, that the perception of trust, or the, I'm sorry, the perception of truth is much more important than truth itself. The perception of truth is much more important than the truth itself. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what I can convince you of. So what I do is I call in, spoof the phone number, base level of trust. Now, The goal is to change the phone number on file because if I change the phone number, I own the account. So what I do is I call in, spoof the phone number. I'm not going to ask her to change the phone number immediately because I know that's going to cause friction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, I need to just check my available balance. Customer service agent is going to ask me two security questions. One of those security questions may be the mother's maiden name. Now, what I've done before I even call in is I've got the complete identity profile of this account holder. I've got the entire profile credit report, background check, social, date of birth, mother's maiden, everything else. Now, I used to do this all the time. So I would call in, they would ask two questions. Usually, one of them is mother's maiden. I got to the point I, I would just miss the mother's maiden name. I would say the wrong name for mother's maiden. I didn't want the correct mother's maiden name. So I would say any name, but I would say it with confidence. So my my last name is Johnson. I would say Johnson customer service. I'm sorry, sir. That's not what we've got. Not what you've got. Well, what have you got? Customer service. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're We're not going to tell you what we've got. Okay. Well, look, I don't know what you've got, but I know what my mom's name is. What are you guys doing over there? So what is customer service trained to do at that point in time? They're trained to ask you two other security questions, which I have the answers to. I answer those questions correctly. Then what happens? Then they change the mother's maiden name to whatever I want them to change the mother's maiden name to. Now that's not even the point of the call. That entire conversation, that entire problem, is fabricated so that I build a rapport with the customer service agent and I layer trust. She asks, she or he asks two other security questions, two other KBA questions. So I, I actually know the answers to those, thereby proving to the customer service agent that I am that person. I'm getting all these knowledge-based authentication questions correct. I'm layering that trust up. The only thing I've done is I've also, I've also diverted her, or him from. The actual point of the phone call, which is changing the phone number on file, that diversion of just asking what the available balance is and getting the mother's maiden name incorrect and then fixing that problem, that entire diversion takes the focus away from from the point of my phone call to begin with. So we get that problem fixed. Customer service agent changes the mother's maiden name to what I want them to change. As I'm hanging up, what do I do? Oh, by the way, can you update my phone number on file? Now, that is the entire purpose of the call. Does it go through? Does it work? Absolutely. It works Works like a charm to this day, as long as... The, the institution, the bank, the credit card company doesn't have two-factor authentication. If they do have two-factor authentication, then you have to have the phone profile, you have to port the number over, some crap like that. Uh, it's not difficult to do that. The thing is, is if you do need to port the phone number over, the only thing that does is it provides, again, it provides another layer of authenticity for the criminal to use. That's the only thing that is. It's it's all about layering trust, layering authenticity. And it's it's that idea of the perception of truth, being more important than the truth itself. It's much more important to me as a criminal that I convince you, I don't care what the truth is. What I care about is what I convince someone of that I'm talking to. That's the way social engineering works. It doesn't matter if it's an email. If it's an email, how do you layer that trust? It used to be that you would send, and this is where we're talking about looking at sophisticated emails in the future, or sophisticated phishing attempts. So it used to be, when you received a phishing email that it would look like it came from Bank of America or Washington Mutual or PayPal or eBay or whatever the company was, it would look exactly like that. That page would look like that. And, you know, the initial phishing attacks, you would look up in the URL and it would be just some gibberish up there. The, the, the URL, the website address would be like, OK, that's that's obviously not PayPal. And and a lot of people wouldn't even look at the ur the, the address bar. They would just go ahead and click on the link and they would fall for the phishing attack. So that was like a base level of stuff at that point in time. And even before that, it was more rudimentary before that. But what happens is, is as victims, as people who, who get used to seeing these these phishing emails, the attackers, the criminals have to get better and better about the way they're sending phishing emails out. What happens over time is they start spoofing the address in the, in, the, in the address bar. So it looks like it's coming from PayPal. Then they start using like domains. So it looks like it's coming from Bank of America or Wells Fargo or anything else like that. And then what do you have to rely on? Well, then you could look at the body of the text and you could say, oh, OK, well, obviously, <laughs> obviously. This is some idiot from Nigeria or Ghana or someplace that's obviously not an English speaking country because the the English is is just incorrect. It's broken. They're using incorrect semantic. I mean, it's just crazy. It's obviously not the correct people. So what's happened since that point now, because victims have gotten better and better at at realizing what a phishing email looks like. and They've gotten used to broken language and everything else and they've gotten used to. The, the spoof domains and they know not to do all this other stuff. What happens today, it, It's and we're looking at business email compromise as kind of an example of this. So what happens today is the attacker, he goes, he or she goes, it's usually a he because in the 20 years that I've been involved in cybercrime, over 20 years, counting my time as a good guy. In over the two decades that I've been involved in cybercrime, the number of female cyber criminals that I have personally interacted with have been two, two. That's it. Most of these people are males. I I, I don't know why. I, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I think males are just idiots. I mean, I'm one and I can say that. So this, the the guy, what happens is, is when he's sending out a phishing email, he will register this thing called a Unicode domain. So a Unicode domain is I I own anglerfish.com, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. I own that domain. So what an attacker would do if he was looking to spoof that domain, because in the EU and EU, the UK, we have this thing called DMARC, Domain Message Authentication and Reporting. So we have this thing called DMARC, which means that an attacker cannot, if a company has DMARC instituted or installed and initiated or whatever you want to call it. If DMARC is instituted within that organization, an attacker, it is impossible, it is impossible for an attacker to spoof that company's domain. He cannot do it. He cannot do it. So what he has to do, he has to rely on either free domains to spend, send out phishing emails, or he has to rely on like domains. Now, historically, like domains. What I mean by that is, say you were visiting mark.com, M-A-R-K.com. What an attacker would do to, to make his domain look like mark.com is he would register R-N-A-R-K dot and, and rely on the R and the N being so close together that the victim would think that was an uh, was an M, and he or she would fall for that. That historically was the way like domains were, were registered, and that's the way attackers use that. But again, this this idea of sophistication, attackers are becoming smarter because victims are becoming smarter, and they're used to seeing the, the way that attackers work. Nowadays, what happens is the attacker registers a Unicode domain, which means like you take anglerfish.com, he would register anglerfish.com, except that I there would not be an English alphabet I. It would be an I from another alphabet, except it wouldn't have the dot above it. It would look exactly the same. It would register just fine. It would have the security certificates, everything else, except that dot would not be above that I. Now he registers that. He sends that out. Now here's the problem if you're doing business email compromise, the attacker, what he does is he goes to LinkedIn, he finds a target, payroll person, whatever the hell that is. He spearfishes that person. Spear phishing is 86% successful. It's 86% successful. 86. So if I, if I take the notion that I, that I specifically want to target a person, the chances of me gaining access to their email, 86%, it's going to happen. It's going to happen doesn't matter the amount of training the person has it's still 86% successful so i spearfish the person that i found on linkedin that's a payroll person the only thing i'm going to do is get his login credentials to his email i'm going to start logging into his email just reading the only thing i'm going to do is read all those email messages he's got there until i find a target within the email i find the target in the email i start reading all of those messages and that target's going to be someone that's requesting money, you know, or, or telling that payroll person to send wires out to this person or that person. So I'm going to find that target. It may be a CEO. It may be someone who's sending in invoices to payroll to be paid, something like that. I'm going to find that, that target. I'm going to read every single email interaction that person's got with the payroll person. I'm going to start mimicking. I'm going to get the relationship down, right? I'm going to get the language down that's being used, everything else. Once I've got that, I register a Unicode domain in the in the email address or the domain of that target that I found within the payroll email. Once that's done, I come back in the payroll email, block that the, the real person from emailing in, have all those emails go to trash, whatever the hell is going on there. And then I spoof an email, send it to payroll, ask for the wire to be sent to me instead of the actual account order. That's how that works. That that's a pretty sophisticated when you think about it, it's sophisticated, but are is it really sophisticated? It's a Unicode domain. It's just that the the dot is not above the i. Now that that does not rely that does not rely on human stupidity. What that is is that's an attacker that understands the technology well enough that he knows. Say you you use most of your technology, you use it to look at. You use your mobile device, your phone, to read those emails. Are you going to notice if you're going through all these emails? Are you going to notice on a Samsung Note eight or nine? That I doesn't have a dot above it. No. Even if you're at a desktop, if you're working in payroll and you're going through two to 300 of these things, these emails a day, are you going to notice that one email doesn't have a dot above an I? Absolutely not. That is why phishing, social engineering works so well. It relies on the technology. The attacker understands that first and foremost, the victim has an inherent trust of the technology. He uses that trust to manipulate the person into giving access information data cash over. So that's what that article is talking about when it says looking more and more towards sophisticated means of phishing. It's it's that type of thing. And, and understand that phishing is just a social engineering, engineering attack. That's the only thing it is. It's a social engineering attack. I think what we're going to do in looking in the future We're getting to the point that attackers, if you look at, especially if you look at business email compromise, and I think that what I've seen in all all my time as a cyber criminal, what tends to happen is, is a crime, a tool is used in one specific area, like remote desktop protocols or, 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 um, socks proxies. I mean, when we started using stuff like that, we started using it for one specific thing, but what happens is, is that it bleeds down like phone porting, for example, phone porting started, it started with people trying to steal Bitcoin from these large Bitcoin holders. You had some idiot on on Facebook that was bragging about, I own 4,000 Bitcoins and I just bought a brand new Lamborghini. So you had some idiot on there. And when you have somebody on that, that's the only thing you can call that person is a victim. That's the only thing he or she is. They're a victim. So they're advertising, they're bragging about all the Bitcoin. You've got some guy in the Ukraine or in, in in the United States that is pretty good about cybercrime. Hell, he may not even be that good, but he knows enough to say, oh, this guy's got a lot of Bitcoin. Let's see if I can get that. And the only thing he needed to do at that point was port the phone number. And that porting, and we're going to have an episode on porting here in the, in the very near future, but that, ep, that that porting is just shutting down the phone that was in the victim's pocket and having that phone number port it over or transfer it over to a prepaid phone that's in the criminal's pocket. And once that happened, there goes that 4,000 Bitcoins. While well, you've still got your Lamborghini, maybe you can sell it and have a little bit of money left over. So that that's what phone porting started with was that. But what happens is, is, is that just because you have a tool in one area, once it becomes popular, once once people understand the, the effectiveness of that tool, in this case, phone porting, it bleeds down into other areas. So now we're looking at people that are porting phone numbers over just to do an ATO, just to, just to take over a credit card account, just to take over a credit card account so they can order a MacBook Pro. That's what phone porting's resorted to now. And that's, that's what we're going to see across the board with us phishing, like the business scheme email compromise, that like domain stuff, that's a tool that's being used. So what we're going to see, and I really believe this is what we're going to see is we're going to see that type of technique bleed across these other areas as well, into ATO fraud, into uh, everything else. Instead of it just being for business email compromise, we're going to see people just fishing for people's social security numbers, for social security account takeovers, for uh, income tax returns. I mean, I'm actually, I know that's already happening with income tax returns this year, but we're going to see that, that, that sophisticated, they call it sophisticated. I don't think it's sophisticated. We're going to see that technique being used more and more once it becomes popular enough, people will start to refine it. The criminals will start to refine it. Of course, how do you cope with that? How do you defend against that? Well, the number one way, and that's the third—that's the third thing this article mentioned. the The way that you do that is you have to have you have to have proper security training for the employees. That that's a lot of it. Here's the thing: why would why would I as a criminal Potentially spend years trying to break through an industrial firewall when the only thing I need to do is send a phishing email to someone behind that firewall. I get the exact same access. Why would I spend years trying to break through a firewall when I can go around it? And and here's the thing: a firewall, there are ways around it. Any if you've got a, a person, an employee, that's a that's a that's a way. That's an avenue behind that firewall. That's the only thing that is. So you have to train your employees. And when I talk about proper security training, and I use the example all the time of, I was working for a fortune 50 company. And while I was working there, they did phishing simulation training and they sent out an email to all the employees saying, Hey, we've added two more days of vacation time. They didn't mention what the two days were. They just had a PDF file at the bottom that said calendar. And the question was, is how many people would click on it? The answer was everyone clicked on it. Well, that, that that's common. That's common. All right. But the problem was, is that All the employees that clicked on it, they got angry. They got so angry that they started complaining to management. Management was so upset that the employees were complaining that management releases a memo saying, hey, we're never going to send out a phishing email campaign like this again. We're not going to do it. We're sorry we upset you. We'll let you know next time we start doing phishing simulation training. That, the first email that was sent out, is proper security training. The response from management because it upset the employees is not proper training. It is ridiculous it's stupid. What you're doing is you're making it easier for for criminals to come in and fish your employees when you do that. That's the only thing you're doing. If you're doing if you're going to do proper training, do it in the way that a criminal would attack your company. Let them see what those emails look like. Let them see what those attack vectors look like and feel like. That way they're used to that, they can they can learn to spot that. You have to teach the employee that that emails as as ubiquitous as they are, emails need to be respected. They need to be it's a serious thing. Especially if it's oh, it doesn't really matter if it's business. If you're answering personal emails at work, that's a problem. And here's the thing. we Instead of teaching an, an employee security awareness training at work, why not train the employee to be safe online everywhere? If, you, if the employee learns good safety habits at home, the chances of that translating to the work environment, 100%. That will happen. So we have to change what we're doing. And s- instead of having security awareness training, have online safety training. That way, the employee, the person, is safe throughout their entire online interaction, not just with work. So it's 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 one of these compartmentalization things, right? The the person comes to work. Oh, I've got to practice uh, safe protocols at work or secure protocols at work. No, no, no. You need to practice that twenty four seven whenever you're online. So it, it's about changing the language of what we're doing the idea and making sure it's safety training you need to be safe online because just because you're online it's it's not inherently safe it's not inherently trustworthy a criminal knows that the perception of truth is much more important than the truth itself it doesn't matter what the truth is it matters what the criminal can convince you of that's the issue these two issues i think that i think the article is very good on that again I, they mentioned three things i the first thing i have no idea I've read that and I was like, trash. And then I got to number two and number three. And I was like, yep, those are correct. So I just wanted to start out, and you know, I've spent, I don't know, I guess I've spent about 30 minutes talking about that. So let's move on to another topic. So every now and then I get these emails. And these emails or messages through LinkedIn or Facebook, I get a lot of this stuff through Facebook, these idiot or, or Reddit, these these idiots that will contact me say, I know you used to be a most wanted criminal. How do I, uh, how do I do this? How do I, how do I make me some money? Is there any way you can give me some pointers? And my pointer is usually, dude, did you read the bottom of the articles where they're talking about me serving seven and a half years in prison? Because that's what's going to happen to you because I know you're nowhere near the tech level that I was. So that's what's going to happen to you. The best thing you can do is get your ass in school, get a certificate. Hey, why not go into cybersecurity? Believe you me, that field is booming. And, and the response is usually, oh, I'm not going to do that. Why would I spend that kind of money if I'm able to steal this money over here? And I'm like, you're not stealing anything right now because you're asking me to how to make money. So I know you're broke, but they don't get that. They don't get that. One guy got it, but he got arrested because I asked him, he was breaking the law. And I was like, just stop, just stop. I'll see about, I'll get up with my FBI contacts. I'll see if we can you know, talk to him, we'll see what we can do and everything. And, and dippity Doodah, he didn't stop breaking the law and he gets popped. So uh, he's working for him right now. And hopefully it'll work out all right. I mean, he's, uh, he has the Brett Johnson problem. When I was working for Secret Service, before I turned a new leaf, before I really, really figured out that I was an idiot, when I was working for those guys, I I had what was called diarrhea of the mouth. I talked to the press. I told everyone what I was doing. This kid is, has been having diarrhea as well. He calls me up. He's been talking to everybody, and they, they I think they finally shut him up and, and let him know, hey, you need to be concentrating on doing your job with us and staying out of prison. And then once you're out of that, then you can talk to Brett Johnson or whoever you want to talk to us. So, so I think they finally talked some sense into him. We'll see. We'll see. And I'll keep you guys updated on that. But anyway, I get, I'm on LinkedIn the other day and I get this message. And usually, usually I don't get messages from criminals via LinkedIn. Criminals use LinkedIn all the time, but it's really just to find targets or look up, you know, where people work that they're trying to commit identity theft on, things like that. Criminals usually don't message each other. Criminals use LinkedIn for Intel purposes more than anything. So I get this message from this cat. He's from uh, Stockton, California, and he sends me, I wasn't connected with him or anything like that, and he sends me a note, and his note says, I'm reading it right now, his note says, reaching out about dot, 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 shadow crew, Brett. That was the only thing he said. So I read that, I looked at his profile picture, and I was like, you know, he looks kind of familiar. I may know this cat from the shadow crew days. So I sent him a connection request. Because I'm thinking, because sometimes I talk to these guys that I used to uh, break the law with, and some of them have turned over a new leaf, and you know they're doing well. They've put Shadow Crew and all that crime behind them, and they're doing good in their lives. They're actually not breaking the law, and that, there are a few that are doing that. Most are not like that. Most are just—they're still breaking the law. They've not understood the damage that they're doing. They don't—they don't think there are any victims. You know, they don't understand they're hurting people. So I reached out to this guy, I sent him a connection request, and I said, Hello, Ryan. Well, I didn't hear back from him for a couple of days. So I sent him another note saying, Hey, uh, about Shadow Crew, what? So a week later, he responds to me, and the response was this. The response was, What an odd way for me to greet someone, right? Hey, I like your presentations, man. I just have one question. Does this crusade for good really restrain you from easy pickings? It's wide open, Brett. Ha 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 ha. So he's, that's the message he sent. And I responded to that message. I was like, you know, dude, I'm through. I'm through. Uh, You know, I lost uh, everything that I had stolen, rightfully so. And, uh, you know, I served time, I lost friends, family, everything else like that. And I, I, you know, I'm I'm committed to trying to be a healthier person, to trying to make up for, for the damage that I caused. And he didn't respond to me for that. But what, what got me on this, other than obviously he's he's not thinking about turning over a new leaf. And I told him in my message to him, I was like, hey, if you would like to talk to me, we can talk. And, and I'm here for you if you'd like to maybe get some sense about you. So but what got me was his, his note there at the end saying it's wide open, Brett, wide open. So here's the thing. When I was committing fraud, it was pretty wide open. I mean, you could target any company that you wanted to target. You could get basically any product that you wanted to get. You could open up bank accounts. You could steal identities, everything else. That was, geez, that, the last time, <laughs> last time I was actively doing that was 2006, 2006, 2007. Back then, it was easy. Today, today, the structure, the format, that entire dynamic of cybercrime is so much more sophisticated that when he says wide open, it's a brand new level of things. As I, I pointed this out before, a criminal can come in and buy a tutorial for fifty dollars. He can take a live class for six hundred dollars. It's it's wide open. If he doesn't know if if a company say he's wanting a MacBook Pro, he can't go through Apple because he's not good enough. Well, he can find some mom and pop store that have MacBook Pros and get it like that. If he has trouble with that, the network of people there that are sophisticated that understand what tools to use, the techniques to use, they're in these environments, these large communication channels, these forums. They're there and they freely share information. See, that's the big thing. They freely share information. We, we deal with companies today and, you know, I'm on the good side of things now, but I, it's so frustrating to see companies that they really have this idea. And I've been told this. I have literally been, they have said this to my face, Brett, we would love to stop fraud overall, but at the end of the day, we're worried about our company. And then a lot of these people view competitors, if the fraud goes over to them, that's a plus. That's a plus. Let the fraud go over to them. But that's, that's not, that is not the way cybercrime works. The bad guys are all about sharing information. They're all about banding together. They freely share that. Yeah, you you may be hitting the same company with me, but you know what? I know by sharing the information of, of how I'm hitting this company or this new technique that I found, I know that that by sharing that, that if you find out something new, you're going to share it with me and we're going to make more money. We're going to be able to steal more money at the end of the day. The same thing needs to, that, that idea, that idea of sharing information needs to be on the good guy side of things too. They need to understand that, okay, yeah, I may be able to stop it at my company and you know, if I don't share information, it'll go to the, to the competitors. But guess what? If I get to the point where I'm actually sharing information across the lines with my competitors, if I'm sharing that information, they're going to share that information with me. We're going to become more secure as a, as a vertical, as an entire group and everything. We're all going to make more money at the end of the day. We're all going to make more money. That, that becomes, we have to get to the point. We have to get to that point where we understand that companies understand that sharing information, sharing the techniques and the way that criminals are are hitting you is a plus. It's not, it is not a negative. The only thing negative is when, when a company remains silent, when a company doesn't talk about how they were breached, what tools were used, how the attackers came in. When that doesn't happen, that only makes other companies that haven't seen that attack vector, that only makes other companies much more susceptible to being defrauded at that point. We have to get to the point that we're sharing information across the lines. So that's what I wanted to talk about that. And finally, I've had a couple requests where, uh, yeah, so the last topic of the day, I've had a couple of requests about synthetic fraud. About a year and a half ago, I wrote an article, a blog report about synthetic fraud. And I walked through exactly how synthetic fraud was being committed, the tools the criminals were using, the techniques they used to commit it, blah, 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 blah. When I first started talking about synthetic fraud, <laughs> and it's it, I, I started talking about synthetic fraud when I first started my speaking career. When I first started talking about synthetic fraud, I would be speaking to a group of bankers, or a company, a, a, a group of retailers, what have you, and I would ask, I would say, hey, how many people in the audience know what synthetic fraud is? And say there would be a group of 500 or 1,000 people, and two to three people maybe would raise their hands, two to three people in a group of that size, especially with bankers. You'd ask bankers, how many people know what synthetic fraud is? One or two people would raise their hands and then I would walk through. Well, synthetic fraud is 80% of all new account fraud. It's the fastest growing form of identity theft on the planet. It accounts for 5% of all credit card debt. It accounts for 20% of credit card chargebacks. That is synthetic fraud. Uh, And they, they would get wide eyes, and then I would walk them through the process of how that would work. Now I go into an audience, and I will ask the same question. How many people in the audience know what synthetic fraud is. And now about 25% of the people will raise their hand. We know what synthetic fraud is. I'll go into a credit card company and ask. Now, previously, I would go into a credit card company and ask that, and no one would raise their hand. Ah, we don't know what that is. And I'd have to explain it to them. Now I go into a credit card company and I ask. Everyone raises their hands. Yes, we know exactly what that is. What the hell is going on? What can you tell us about it? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the way that synthetic fraud used to be committed. And when I say used to be, six months ago, six months ago, this is the way it worked. And since that point, banks and creditors, merchants, they've gotten much smarter on what synthetic fraud is. And now these techniques, they're crashing on criminals. They, they Criminals are having a lot of trouble getting these techniques to work. So they've started to to understand, well, this is what we need to be doing. So the way it used to work is that a criminal would go and buy a child's social security number. So you can buy a child's social for $2.08. On the dark web, you get the child's social, the date of birth, the name, the mother's maiden name, and the place of birth, $2. So you would buy the child's social. Now, the reason this works is in 2011, the Social Security Administration, they randomized social security numbers, meaning that you could no longer tell the year the social was issued Or the state the social security number was issued from. They did that. The social security administration did that to defend against identity theft. They did it because people, what could happen is before 2011, if I knew the last four of your social security numbers and I knew enough about you, I could pretty easily get the first. Five. It was easy to get that. So the Social Security Administration they randomized the numbers to circumvent that, to do away with that. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna randomize them that way. Even if someone has the last four, there's no way in hell that they can get the first five. That did the trick. Absolutely did the trick. But what happens is when the Social Security Administration did that, it allows a criminal either to generate Social Security numbers out of thin air using the Social Security number algorithm, or they can use a child's Social Security number. Because you can no longer tell the year it was issued from the state it was issued from. So you, you use a child's Social Security number. You add any name to it, an adult date of birth. You put a phone number to it. You add an address to it, drop address. Then you apply for credit. The, the first mistake, of course, is the Social Security Administration with randomized numbers. The second mistake is the credit bureau system itself. So the criminal then, once he has that, that profile built of the child's social, the name, the adult date of birth, the phone number, and the address, criminal goes out and applies for credit. The way the credit bureau system works is you don't know, the credit bureaus don't know you exist until you tell them you exist. So if you apply for credit and they've never seen that information at all, that application for credit will be denied. But when it's denied, it actually opens up or builds a credit profile in the credit bureau system with that information. So I've gotten that synthetic person, that ghost in the system, I've gotten that person in the credit bureau system. They have a credit report there. It's a zero number. It's a very thin file. It's brand new. So as a criminal, what do I need to do? The first thing I need to do at that point, so I'm in the system. This this whole thing from a criminal point of view, they, they like to do this thing called tri-merging. And tri-merging simply means that the application for credit needs to pull from all three credit bureaus. So it needs to pull from TransUnion, Equifax, Experian. If it pulls from all three, none of the three credit bureaus have seen that, that, that information before. The credit, again, it, the application will be denied, but it builds a profile in all three systems. It merges that same profile as in all three credit bureau systems. So that's what's called tri-merging. Now it's up to the criminal to the the idea is to pump the credit score up to build that credit report where it looks like a real person with great credit. And the way that usually the way it used to happen 6 months ago, the way it happened was is that the criminal would first hit open intelligence systems, OSINT. So he or she, they would go to uh, listyourself.net, which is a free white pages listing service. They would go there, they would input the information of that synthetic person in there. A couple of weeks later, spam mail actual physical mail would start arriving at that drop address in that synthetic person's name. At the same time, any type of open source crawlers, that name would be associated with that address online. Now, while he's doing that, he also applies for rewards cards, grocery, pharmacy, airline. It's free. He may even build a Facebook page if he wants to. Not that he has to, but he can if he wants to. So that takes care of any type of open source crawlers Because a lot of the times, creditors won't just rely on the credit report, the pull of the credit report. They also have some open source things going out there. They want to make sure that the person's associated at the address, blah, 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 blah. So that takes care of open source. The next stop was Capital One. Why Capital One? Well, what would happen is the criminal would go to Capital One. He would apply for a secured card. Why the secured card? Because Capital One, for $39 or $49, they give you a secured card that has two to $300 available credit on it. So the criminal's automatically, immediately making money on that synthetic profile. If he doesn't make anything else, he's made two to $300 off that one profile just applying for credit. So he's banking already. And, and here's the thing. A lot of criminals stop right there. I've read reports. I have known people that do nothing but apply for that secured card, send over that $39 to $49, and then they bank off every single profile, you know, a couple hundred dollars in product or cash that they get out of an ATM. How much do they bank? I know guys that are pulling $13,000 to $20,000 a month just doing that. Nothing but that, all right? Now, you can stop there if you want to as a criminal but most criminals tend to go on from that point so you apply for a secured card it doesn't really do anything for your credit score you might have a 560 you've got a it's a primary line of credit but it doesn't do anything it's a secured card what you have to do then is you have to pump that credit score up and the way that that historically has happened is that the criminal relies on authorized user trade lines, this concept of credit piggybacking in the United States. And here's how that works. In the United States, if you have bad credit, if you know someone that has good credit, you can go to them and you can say, hey, why don't you put me on as an authorized user of one of your credit cards? Now, when you do that, if if you put someone on as an authorized user, that doesn't mean they can use your card. They don't get a card. You don't have to give them a card. They don't have to charge anything at all. But the benefit of that is that the next reporting cycle of that one specific card, that card's history then becomes the authorized user's history. So, say you have, and it's a great tool. Legally, it's a great tool because, say, you have children that are coming up and you want to get them, give them a boost in credit. Was well, as they get ready to start applying for credit, you can simply add them on as an authorized user of one of your cards. The history of those cards becomes their credit history, and they, they get this immediate boost in credit score. They may, they may start with credit of 700 or 800 just because of, of the history that you've got with credit. From a criminal point of view, it's an excellent tool as well, especially for, authori- for, for synthetic profiles. So what a criminal can do, as long as the card is, is old enough, as long as the debt ratio is good enough, there's enough history on the card, criminal can add two of these authorized user trade lines. He can go from a zero credit score to a high 760 plus in 30 to 45 days. 30 to 45 days, he gets a 760 plus credit score. The other benefit for a synthetic profile to use authorized user trade lines, say I open up that, I go through this entire process and my credit report on the synthetic is only a week old, but I add an authorized user card on that's 10 years old. Once that card reports to the synthetic profile, that synthetic credit report then becomes 10 years old it's no longer a week it's now 10 years old from all purposes unless you physically look eyes on at that credit report that credit report is now 10 years old it has nothing but positive credit it's got a 760 credit score who is not going to give credit to that that's that's one of these other failures with synthetic then from there they the criminal goes out and he starts applying for loans. And here's the way that works. So he's got the 760 plus, if it's a brand new guy that doesn't understand how to commit fraud properly, what they do is they go to some place, they go to a motorsports place or a credit union or stuff like that and they start applying for $20,000 loans. They walk out with that. So they're making 20 to 30k immediately. If it's a more sophisticated criminal, someone who understands identity theft better, or how to cash out better, what he or she will do is they will open up accounts, they'll make a, they'll make payments on the accounts for 3 to 4 months, maybe up to 6 months. Then they cash out like that pocket 60 to 70 K what we read about in the news and what a lot of people are more worried about though, is this, this idea of criminals starting to mix real information with synthetic information. And the way that works is, is, is like this. Say I find a target, say I'm wanting to, to hit someone named Brett Johnson, who, who I just want to hit that name. So I will buy a child social security number. I will add Brett Johnson's name onto that child social security number. I will add Brett Johnson's real date of birth onto that. I will use a different phone number. I will use an address in a different zip code than the real Brett Johnson. I will uh, uh, build up a synthetic profile in that fake Brett Johnson name, that synthetic Brett Johnson's name. I'll hit that up to a 760. At the same time, I'm going to use the real Brett Johnson's social security number and date of birth, which I can buy from someplace like RoboCheck for $3. I will use the real Brett Johnson's social and date of birth, The only thing I'm going to do with that is I'm going to to apply for an EIN, an employer identification number. That's the only thing I'm going to do with that information. Once I get that EIN number, once I have the synthetic Brett Johnson at a 760 plus, I'm going to take the real EIN number, the synthetic Brett Johnson information, mix them together, and I'm going to apply for business credit. Why do I do that? Well, first of all, I can't get an EIN number using synthetic information. I have to use the real information. The reason I want to do that is I apply for business credit. The initial application for business credit, it doesn't look, the creditors, they don't look at the business. They look at the person applying for credit. That synthetic person has a 760. The profit potential there, well, you're looking at a credit line of $200,000 plus, six months. That's one of the big things on synthetic. Now, that's the way things were working. That's the exact technique this thing worked. That's exactly, that is exactly how this worked not six months ago. Uh, Criminals would get, uh, you could go on Google to this day, you can go on Google and you can look up authorized user trade lines. And they sell trade lines from anywhere from $300 up to $2,500, depending on the age of the card, the debt ratio on the card, the outstanding balance, things like that. Now, criminals, here's the deal. Criminals do not. We're stingy. We're, We're thrifty. We steal money, but we don't like to spend money. So criminals, they're not going to spend $300 to $2,500 on a trade line. You don't have to do that if you're a criminal. The only thing you do is you go buy a bank login, a credit card login for $10, and you add your own authorized users onto that. That's the way that crime actually works. So that's the way this thing was working not six months ago. Now, as I said, I go in, I speak to a group, and now about 25% of the audience raises their hand. Oh, yeah, we know exactly what synthetic fraud is. What have you got for us? And I'll walk them through it. So today, you go on the dark web, and there's a lot of people that are complaining. A lot of criminals are complaining, saying, "Oh, the CPN game is dead." And and when I say CPN, that stands for Credit Privacy or Credit Profile Number. Uh, You see, synthetic fraud it started in the poor neighborhoods. Uh, These these neighborhoods where people had very bad credit, where they could not get a car, they could not get furniture. They they had destroyed their credit, um, and and I don't blame the people. It's just that that I used to be one of these guys. You know, I used to be one of these people I had had horrible credit, could not, uh, you know, and you do that. You you, you default on stuff because you don't have money to pay for theft. you got to have furniture and everything else. You don't have to pay for it, so you go and get the credit and you know you can't make the payments and everything else. Well, you've got entire neighborhoods of people like that. That's where that's where a lot of synthetic fraud started. You know, a parent would use their child's Social Security number to get phone service or to get electricity, uh, finally apply for credit. And then 2011 hits and you're able to mix names and everything else with this kind of stuff. So it starts in the poorer neighborhoods. And a lot of these unscrupulous people like I used to be they start advertising to these people credit repair services. Oh, it's legal. We call it a CP and you're allowed to use a different number than your real social security number and application for credit. It's called a credit privacy number. Oh, it's completely legal. Don't worry about it. Well, no, it's not legal. It's identity theft because most of the time it's a child's social that you're using, but it starts there and then it bleeds over. It's this concept again, that I talked about of crime bleeding over. It's, it's, we see it in one area, somebody sees the effectiveness in other areas, they co-opt it, they make it more efficient, and it works like a charm. That's the same thing with synthetic fraud. So six months ago, that was the technique of the way it's working. Today, you've got cyber criminals that are on these forums and everything, and they're complaining, you know, hey, my technique's not working. These authorized user trade lines are not porting correctly, or they're, they're fake trade lines, or you know, it's it's just my accounts are being shut down. I can't open a bank account. Yada yada yada. Anyone know? Is it completely dead? That's what they're complaining. Is it completely dead? Well, no, it's not completely dead. That's like uh, you know, we see it every now and then that a new tool. For criminals, a new, a new anti-fraud tool will come out, and you'll see some guy that will, that will cry saying, oh, carding is dead. It's all over because of this new tool this security company came out with, and it's never dead. It's just that criminals need to figure out some other technique on how to get around that tool or how to circumvent that tool, how to, or, or they find a company that doesn't use that tool. So here, here's the way this thing works, and this is I'm getting this information from Hidden Hand, H-I-D-D-E-N, H-A-N-D. dot club. Hidden club. It's a surface website. Uh, they talk about a lot of cybercrime, how to do things, they sell items, everything else. They network together and share information like I've been talking about. So the the thread on this forum, the guy is asking, is the CPN game dead? And you can almost hear the tears in his voice. You could say, Oh, he's I I feel so sorry for the guy. He was making money on this synthetic fraud. It was easy enough to do. Now banks and creditors, they've they've gotten used to it and they've shut him down, and the poor kid, the poor guy. He's just not able to make any money whatsoever. I feel so sorry for him. So he's crying about it. And he says, um, I've created multiple CPNs, multiple credit profile numbers, these synthetic identities. I've built the profile, opened up, up, up small credit cards, bank accounts, loans, etc. but I can never find a reliable high limit trade line source. So he's looking for authorized user trade lines. I've lost so much money being scammed out of legitimate trade lines. Oh, he's crying because he's losing money from scammers. Doesn't realize the, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't get the irony in that. Which I I was always the guy that you know I at least I got the irony. I knew I was stealing money, and when somebody stole money from me, I figured, okay, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't complain. He's complaining. I'm uh, starting to believe CPN game is dead. Trade line game is just a scam. Oh yeah, my search has been going on for over a year. Still haven't found legit sources that actually hits the profiles report. So he's looking for authorized user trade lines that actually will, will report to the CPN number. Because here's here's what's going on. It used to be that you could add on the CPN number, the synthetic profile as an authorized user, and it would report to that. Creditors have gotten a lot smarter. They they understand now that criminals have the technique that criminals use. So they let the name be entered in, but it never reports to the card. And that for a criminal trying to create a synthetic profile, that is a death toll right there. It's like, okay, I've spent this time and effort. I've either paid someone to add a, a profile on or I've, I've bought uh, logins to add my own authorized usernames on there. I can't use these profiles because I've got a 0 or a 560 credit score. Who's going to who's going to grant me credit other than Fingerhut? And nothing is at Fingerhut that I can resell at 80% retail. So that that becomes an entire problem. At least creditors understand, they understand where to stop it. This is how how creditors have to stop this stuff, this authorized user stuff. If you if you make sure that it's not reporting to the card then the criminal can't build up build up the credit in a, in a quick amount of time. So that was posted uh, September, a few months back. And the, one of the responses just seven days ago, and this is ongoing thread, this guy responds and he's like, hey, the old methods are burnt out. It takes a lot of patience to do this thing. And here's what I've been talking about for the past few months now. I was asked a few months ago by Visa, I went to talk to Visa, and they asked me, what is the future of cybercrime? Where are we looking at criminals going in the future? What's going to be happening? And my response, just right off the bat, my response was, and I didn't realize it until I said it, my response was patience. Patience. As we look towards cybercrime in the future, criminals are going to become more and more patient. This concept of patience defining what a criminal does. So the more experienced your criminal is, the, the better the chance that the criminal is going to take his time to do things properly. When I was committing crime, we knew that if we were setting up fraudulent bank accounts, that you had to wait, you had to be patient with that bank account for at least 30 days until all the fraud flags went down, and then you could start laundering money through that bank account some banks are still like that today. Nowadays, you have to, because you've got machine learning and things like that, you have to be very careful about where those flags are. You find out where all those bars are and you try to come out, come in under those, those flags all the time. And they've changed because now we've got deception technology. We've got, we've got machine learning. We've got all those other things in there that make it more difficult for criminals to commit crime. So this, this idea patience is going to really define things. For example, with carding, you take, you take a brand new guy, that buys stolen credit card data. If it's a brand new cat, he's going to try to use that stolen credit card data just as soon as he gets it. So if he buys a card on a Wednesday, he's going to try to use that card Thursday, Friday, as soon as he gets the card. That is a mistake. A more experienced criminal understands, hey, you don't order stolen goods. You don't use stolen credit card data order online on a Thursday or Friday. You order Monday, Tuesday at the latest Wednesday morning. Now, why do you do that? And I've asked this to people and they're like, I don't know. Why do you do that? Well, here's why you do that. A criminal, an experienced criminal, he will only order Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. He's not going to order overnight because overnight shipping is is a fraud flag. Two-day shipping is still fraud flag. So he's trying to find a place that has ground shipping, but that the ground shipping is going to arrive before the weekend because he doesn't want that package sitting in a warehouse over the weekend that allows the company two more days to figure out that the order was fraudulent and that way the guy doesn't get his laptop, his computer, his TV, his phone, whatever that is. So that's the reason that criminals, more experienced criminals, order like that. A criminal will go into a website. He'll he'll read the terms of service. And here's the thing. Criminals are the only people on the planet that read terms of service. Maybe an attorney reads that, but let's be honest. Attorneys are criminals anyway. So criminals are the only people on the planet who read the terms of service of a website. The reason you do that is you read it. You try to find out the shipping policies. You try to find out their payment policies, you find out when they process the order. Hopefully, they mention who the fraud, the anti-fraud provider is in the terms of service. You find out a lot of information from terms of service. So you read the terms of service. You try to find a company that will ship ground. You, maybe they, Hopefully, they've got that great little shipping map of shit that on, on their website that says, okay, we ship ground, and it will certainly arrive in two days. And that, my friend, is the target. That's exactly what you want. You order ground. It doesn't raise any fraud flags. You place the order on a Monday or Tuesday. That way it's at your drop address long before the weekend. Take the weekend off. You don't have to worry about it being flagged or anything else like that. That's the concept of patience. The same That that concept is bleeding down throughout every aspect of cybercrime, from identity theft through synthetic fraud through account takeover. So I buy a PayPal login for, say, $10, 10 to $20, if I, if I go in with that login, I've got the password, I've got the person's identity profile, I've, I've built that, I've got the login information, I sign in. If I were to try to use that login immediately, the chances of me being able to use that, absolutely zero. It's not going to work. But what happens if I let that login age? If I just log in, log out, log in, log out, over the space of a month, month and a half, I don't do anything, I just log in. The chances at some point, and maybe PayPal doesn't work like that. I've not tested it. I've not, I mean, I think that it would probably work. So what would happen is is I log in, log out over the course of four to six weeks. At some point, I'm going to expect that PayPal will recognize the device that I'm using to log in as a legitimate device, as a whitelisted device within that system. Once that happens... Then I can start buying products, applying for credit, PayPal credit, whatever I want to do of my My success chances increase being able to defraud the PayPal system just by being patient within that system. We see that across the board. You know, criminals, they take their time. The more experienced criminals, they don't rush into things. That concept of patience is going to come through the entire thing. So that's that's one of the things with synthetic fraud now. So this method the guy is talking about. This is the way the synthetic fraud is done today. So today, and he starts, he's answering this guy that's, that's complaining about being ripped off. He's losing money and blah, 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 blah. So he says the old methods are burnt. Takes a lot of patience. I wouldn't buy trade lines off anyone online unless there's 100% certified that they're going to report to the credit report. Also, you need primary trade lines when you first start the number. Here's the thing, primary trade lines. I want to read the rest of this thread, this response. Then we'll talk about what he's actually saying and the way this is working today. So he says, also, you need primary when you first start the number, but go the long way around. Get an LLC, make a website, open up an LLC in a business friendly state or city, pay the bills. When you open up the lines of credit, use the money you're getting to pay your bills. The possibilities are endless once you get the first line of credit, you made it. So what is he talking about there? Here's the way this is actually going on today. And I was talking to the, um, I don't know what county Denver is in. It may be Denver County, but I was talking to the, uh, the Denver County Sheriff's Office. And what they were seeing is they were seeing hundreds of businesses being opened, fraudulent businesses being opened. And the address that the business was associated with didn't matter. Evidently it's very cheap to open up a business in Denver. They were seeing hundreds of these things opening. And the question is the question was is okay, why are criminals doing this? What what's the purpose of this? Well, there's several purposes from business identity theft to synthetic fraud itself. So you can have business synthetic identity theft as well. The answer is all of that's going on. The key here that the criminal is talking about is you need primaries when you first start the number. It's this concept of patience. So the the impatient synthetic fraudster, he's still going to try the the child social. He's going to try the credit piggybacking and everything else. The more patient, the more sophisticated criminal, what he's going to do is he's going to open up a business. He's going to first, he's going to have his victim the victim, he's going to open up an LLC. He's going to let that LLC age out 30 days. That way it's it's in any type of open source crawlers. All right. That's what's going to happen. He's going to let it age out 30 days. He's going to build a website in the name of that LLC. Again, that takes care of any type of crawlers that are out there, anything else. He's going to let the website age out like that. Then he's going to start building credit properly. Now building credit properly. If you're a criminal, there's a difference in that. Building credit properly as a criminal means that you can use some shelf corporations. You're looking for primary lines of credit. You're not looking for credit piggybacking anymore. You're looking for a primary line. Now you, if there are ways as a criminal and we're not going to talk about that (laughs) because I don't want to give any pointers out, but there are ways that you can, that you can report as a primary to someone's credit report, either by registering a business there are other ways to do that as well. Leans are one way. There are several ways to do that that you can report as a tr- primary trade line to someone's credit report. There are certainly a like, guy can go and get a, a car, any number of things that will report to a primary line. The idea now, and we were talking about this. I was talking about this with a couple of guys from Wells Fargo a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, and we were talking about synthetic fraud, and the guys knew exactly what it was, and they were they were top notch on that. The guy looked at me and we were talking about, you know, these guys using the technique of aging it out 30 to 45 days, putting cash in pocket in two in two to three months. And he looked at me and he was like, well, Brett, you know, what the hell are we going to do when a criminal decides to age these things out a year? Well, this, this is what we're talking about. Criminal ages these things out six to 12 months. The more patient the criminal is, the longer he takes his time in building what looks like a legitimate person, the chances of that being more profitable for the criminal and less likely to be caught by anti-fraud systems, that becomes a problem. It's this concept of patience. The criminals in the future are going to be much more patient. They're going to take their time. I used to teach when I was, when I was, and Shadow Crew was a teaching environment. I was unfortunately, I was one of these teachers on this. I taught people that you should never, you should never act out of desperation. If you're doing anything out of desperation, you are going to mess up. Now, the entire concept of law enforcement is to make sure criminals act out of desperation. And they're very effective on that. Just ask me, I served seven and a half years in prison. So <laughs> that, that happens. This, this concept of patience, of not doing anything out of desperation, of taking your time, making sure everything's done right. That's what we're seeing now with synthetic fraud, this this technique of aging these accounts out, of building businesses up that can report directly to credit or partnering with businesses that report directly to your credit bureau. That is now the way that synthetic fraud is, is done. We see through Congress now, Congress is, is looking at a bill that will allow creditors to reference the Social Security numbers, to make sure that those Social Security numbers are attached to the correct person applying for credit, either with date of birth, name, things like that. If that happens, that will will be a boon for children. Children right now are the number one victims of identity theft. One in four, 25% of all kids will be a victim either through synthetic fraud, medical fraud, or tax fraud. If we get to the point, if they pass this bill in Congress that allows companies to reference a social security number just to check it, to verify it, that will help protect kids. I'm all for that. That will not stop synthetic fraud because you have these things called I-10s, You have prisoners, social security numbers. You have all these other numbers that are out there that a criminal can use as a synthetic for a synthetic profile. So that's what we're talking about today. That's what I wanted to get out to you guys. And <laughs> before we know it, it looks like, it looks like our episode is done for the day. Who would have thought that without Carice, that I could talk for an hour. And guess what? That's right. That's right. I got it in anyway. So just as as, before we finish today, just let me point out a couple other things since we've talked about synthetic fraud, talked about uh, all these other things. Please, as a company or, or a business, please get to the point or start to understand that we need to train our employees to be safe overall. Online safety, not security awareness training. If you're doing training, do proper training. Instead of doing training for compliance, do training to make a difference. There's a difference on that. HIPAA training is, strip, is strictly for compliance. It's strictly for compliance. I'm in a medical town. I have seen how HIPAA is implemented in this city. It's horrible. It's, it's great for compliance. It's a checkmark. It's a checkmark program. The, the employees go in during their lunch break. They watch a couple of videos. They, they answer a couple of questions and that's it. Do they remember? Do they actually, I mean, yeah, they practice it, but HIPPA hip, hip is not for criminals. It's for the employees to make them feel, I mean, to check a box. So do proper security awareness or safety training. Do proper online safety training. Let them know exactly what a criminal uh, attack looks like. That way they get used to that. Uh, at the same time, we need to start looking more and more about sharing their information, about being open with other companies. That doesn't mean that you have to give proprietary information up. But you need to be talking to everybody. I mean, we're all in the the business of stopping the fraud that's happening. So share information as well. Synthetic fraud I talked about, children I talked about, freeze your credit. Freeze the credit of every single person in the house because kids are also the number one victims of identity theft. As of September 21st, 2018, credit freezes became free, free it's no longer going to cost you anything so there's no reason that you can't freeze your credit and I say freeze not put a credit alert on there is a difference so freeze the credit a credit freeze stops all new account fraud understand that I said all new account fraud for children that's great for adults it still just stops all new account fraud so two years ago new account fraud was just four percent four percent of all overall fraud the other 96% was existing accounts. Because of that, adults also need to monitor all accounts, credit report, credit cards, bank accounts, merchant logins, email logins, because they all have, have value. On the accounts where you can, place alerts on those accounts, the lowest dollar level alert you can possibly place. For example, Discover Card has a $0 alert, meaning that if, if, if a criminal just gets your Discover Card and pings it to see if it's still alive, you get that SMS message. So ping that. Place the alerts on the cards. That's about it for today. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on about pointers, but that's that's what I really wanted to get out of it. Passwords, use a password manager. I preach that constantly. Use a password manager. That's why 92% of all attacks begin with a phishing attack. It's this whole concept of credential stuffing because I know my listeners out there, I know you're using... The same password across multiple websites. I know that I do that. I use a password manager. I still do that for for what I call crap websites. Well, there's a lot of crap websites out there. Let's be honest. There's a lot of crap websites out there. So, but but use a password manager. Uh, it doesn't take that long to set up. I like LastPass. I don't care what you use. Just use a password manager. There are free versions of that. You can try it out. I think that if you try it out for two weeks, you won't go back to anything else. This is Brett Johnson, and we thank you, or I thank you for listening to the episode today. I hope, I hope you've learned something. You know, we've got so many of these topics and Carice will be joining joining back next week. We've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect your company against fraud. So please subscribe to the online fraudcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. Please tell your friends. If you're able to rate or review us wherever you can, please do so. That way more listeners will come. We can help, uh, help more people and companies as well. And we want to hear what you like, and what you don't like about this broadcast. So please send us notes on what we can do to improve on what you would like to hear about, because we get our topic ideas from what we hear from our listeners. You can find us at Online Fraudcast on Facebook. On our website, www.onlinefraudcast.com, you can find us individually on LinkedIn, Carice Hendrick or Brett Johnson, or you can email us directly at info at Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.